We're sipping champagne in Las Gatas, California. Sip, sip, hooray! Hi there, and welcome to Sip, Sip, Hooray, the podcast where we make wine fun, not stuffy, effervescent, not boring. And speaking of bubbles, that's our focus today. We are thrilled to be joined by the president of one of the world's oldest and best-loved champagne houses, Laurent Perrier. Even better, it is also the largest family and female-run champagne house. You're going to love our conversation with Michelle DeFeo. So pop some bubbly and let's get this party started. We are two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin, and you know, champagne is one of these wines that brings you pleasure. The French term is vin de plaisir, and so we are so pleased that Michelle, that you are joining us today. And you know, it's exciting to talk to you about the House of Laurent Perrier, the history, and you've had three centuries of women at the helm, which is, you know, quite something to celebrate. And while champagne is for celebrations, we also want to talk about how perhaps you should be drinking a glass of Laurent Perrier every day, if you can, or something bubbly every day. So um, also, I'd like to note, we are recording this on July 14th, Bastille Day. So it's a even greater pleasure to be talking French champagne. So Michelle, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Bonjour, bonjour Mary. It is my pleasure to be with you today to talk about these these vins de plaisir and and certainly to be doing so like you said on Bastille Day, which it's it's amazing, you know, speaking about the history of Laurent Perrier, the storming of the Bastille happened on July 14, 1789, and it was only 23 years after that that Laurent Perrier was established. Really? So it's uh, that is it puts it in good historical context for how long we have been doing this and the expertise that we have built up along the way. Wow! And that was the year eighteen twelve. That was in eighteen twelve. Yes, it's um, the, uh, the it was first founded by uh, by a, a cooper and a, and he had a cellar. A cooper was someone who made barrels. At that time, we were uh, doing primary fermentation in barrels in Champagne, and he of course had a cellar master who is making the wines, the cellar master's name is, was Eugène Laurent. And when the, when the cooper died, he actually left the house to his cellar master. And then the cellar master died in 1887. And he, uh, he actually died in a, in a tragic accident in the cellars, but at least he died doing what he loved. Mm-hmm. Um, but he left it to his widow and her name was Mathilde Laurent Perrier. And they were of course expecting her to, you know, just kind of take a step back and let the men run the house. But instead, she took the bull by the horns, and she was very much in control. And she became our first woman at the helm of, of Champagne Laurent Perrier. And when she died, she left it to her daughter. And then when her daughter died, she, it was sold to another family and a woman by the name of Marie-Louise Lanson de Nonancourt. And it is her granddaughters now, Alexandra and Stephanie, who are at the helm of their house, and her great daughter, Lucy, who is one of the daughter's daughters, who has also just joined our house. So it's, it's this amazing history of family, of intergenerational leadership, of course, of, of female leadership. Uh, and for me personally, I have now worked with, uh, with three generations of the family personally, which is a, a wonderful thing to be able to do. I feel like I'm kind of a, a guardian of the history of the house to, 
make sure that I steward it into, in whatever way that I can, into its next century of existence. So incredible, like the the impact of all that history. And I just love the fact that there's such a strong line of of um, women in charge. So uh, tell me how you as a Jersey girl, um, <laughs> first of all, I love that you're you're fluent in French, obviously, I, we heard it off the top. Um, <laughs> but how did a Jersey girl end up, you know, running this, being president of this famously um, wonderful and old French champagne house. It's it's certainly not what I I mean really who could even dream of of you know running in a subsidiary of a champagne house right when when they're young but certainly for me this was not something that I had ever aspired to. Uh, my family is uh, comes from a blue collar background and I actually I have two rocks on my desk right now right in front of me. Mm-hmm. One of them is bright white. It is a, it is part of the soil part of the chalk that comprises the champagne vineyards. So I look at that to always remember where our wines come from. But then I have another rock and it's a piece of anthracite coal, black with iridescent rainbows mm-hmm. on it. And that reminds me of where I came from and where my, my family came from, which was the coal mining area of, of Eastern Pennsylvania. Nice. So who would have thought that, you know, when my great uncle gave me this big piece of coal as it was my, one of my prized possessions and it still mm-hmm. is, that, that someone who came from that background would then have this beautiful white rock and would be espousing all the virtues of something as beautiful and historic as champagne. But I was the first person in my family to go to college, and I had fallen in love with France because as I was uh, I was watching television one night at my grandmother's house, waiting to write down the lottery numbers of all things, and uh, which was my little task as like an eight or nine year old. And as I was waiting for the grandma's numbers to be pulled, there was a little PSA on the television uh, communicating about an exchange student program called AFS. And they had images on there saying, "Hey, apply to be an to an exchange apply to be an exchange student." And they had a photo of the Eiffel Tower. And I called my mom. And I was like, "Mom, what is that? That's so pretty." She said, "Oh, that's the Eiffel Tower." I said, "Oh, can we go visit?" And you know, at that time, no one in my family even had a passport. We had just immigrated fairly recently, right? Um, but I decided that I wanted to go to France. So I, about six years later, I finally got to become an exchange student with AFS when I was 15, and that just started a lifelong love of all things French. So I I graduated with a degree in French and thought maybe I wanted to translate um, and realized that wasn't really the right thing for me. But I I got a job just being bilingual because I was bilingual. I got a job that I just applied to in the newspaper that just said bilingual administrative assistant needed. And lo and behold, it was at a a large wine and champagne importing company. Hmm. Wow. Um, And that was then. That was 25 years ago. And since then, I got bitten by the wine bug. And here I am. So, Michelle, I have to know, did your grandmother win any of those lotteries? <laughs> As a matter of fact, she, she once won $10,000. Wow. And, and I remember that one very well because uh, she treated me. She had to, that was a, a lottery that was held by the, I believe, the New York Post. And she had to come into New York City from New Jersey, which is where I grew up, and hold one of those giant checks for them to oh. take her picture. <laughs> So, so I, I got to go, that was, that was, as far as I recall, that was my very first trip to New York City. <laughs> so that was very, so my grandmother's lottery has actually been, lottery playing was, was very influential in my life because that's when I fell in love in New York City. And now here I am in New York City uh, as the president of a champagne importing company. So oh, you well, never know how you're going to get there. Right? You never know. Well, and it sounds like, you know, you hit the jackpot 
you know, monitoring oh, those good. those numbers. Oh, nice good one, Mary Ireland. Very good. Cheers, cheers to that. I hope you have lots of love for you. Raise mine to you. Yeah, yes. sip, sip, hooray to that. Oh, that's funny. Sip, sip, hooray to that for sure. So, so it's been it's been a wonderful ride. And when um, so I had started working for another company, which will go unnamed. They're one of my competitors now, and they're mm-hmm. successful enough that I don't need to say their name out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I learned a huge amount. After that, I actually moved to California thinking maybe I want to make wine. And I landed in San Francisco and I got a job at a wholesaler. And I was I was listening recently to your uh, your interview of Alan Viadere. Yes. And I, I don't mind growing older, but it is it is interesting to me. I was thinking, oh, I remember when his mother came in and talked to us because I worked for the distributor that was selling the uh, Viadere wines in the 90s. And, you know, I don't, Alan was probably, I'm sure he wasn't of legal drinking age yet. He may have even still been in diapers. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think about some of like the wonderful women like that. I remember when Delia Villadere came into our meeting and she's, um, you know, she's a, a small woman who is just mm-hmm. filled with energy, who is mm-hmm. incredibly smart. She's a PhD. She had this very audacious plan to establish this winery and use Slovenian oak, I believe it was. And, and, you know, which I assume they're still doing, I don't know that for sure, but I was just so, I was very lucky because I did have over the course of my career, certain women that I was able to see and say, okay, there are women who do cool things in this business. Very few, but I remember them all very clearly. And now I think, you know, 25 years later, uh, there are more women in the business. And I'm very, very lucky to work for the largest female run winery in Champagne. And that's become, you know, something that, um, that uh, I've worked very hard to do as well is support other women in the industry and make this industry more diverse because it is no longer just straight white men that drink wine. So, you know, it's, it's not, we're always doing ourselves a disservice to have had that be the the largest representation of of people in the industry. And I'm so glad to see certainly the rapidity of change that the, the, the slope of the change has increased dramatically over the last, I would say five years, even over the last two years. Uh, which sure. is a wonderful thing to, to see now in this business. Well, Michelle, I understand that you have participated in mentorship programs on one through the Batonage uh, organization. And can you tell us about that? And also, who were your mentors um, in addition to perhaps Delia? So I, you know, I actually never, um, I was certainly inspired by a number of people, but I never had the guts to ask somebody for help. And mm. um, so I, I certainly looked at, at many people from afar and admired them and tried to emulate them, but they probably would not, I'm Delia Villadere would have absolutely no idea who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I didn't necessarily have, I didn't have any mentors who were women. I would just watch from afar. Um, it wasn't until I would say about maybe 10 years ago that I started asking for help when I realized I was out of my depth because I was moving forward. So I was, you know, I would ask peers, I would be in maybe in tasting groups with, with my peers. So they were all mentoring me. We were mentoring each other, but the idea of an actual mentor program or asking someone, Hey, can you, can you spend some time with me and help me? It was never something that crossed my mind. Um, I've, I've, um, I suppose because maybe I, I I am kind of a fish out of water in this industry, or at least I perceive that, that I kind of always assumed that everyone knew more than I did. And this is very much something that this, this goes far beyond me or far beyond the wine business. This is a well-documented phenomenon that women suffer from at a much higher proportion than men, which is called imposter syndrome. 
totally. I can re- I can relate. Me too. Yes, That's full right? on me. That is me. Yeah. I don't yeah. ask anybody because that'll just show how dumb I am. You know? Exactly. <laughs> I'll just reveal exactly. my stupidity. Right. Or, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, they'll they'll figure out I am an imposter, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's a terrible thing. And it really is <sighs> prevalent with women where I'm, I, I will very happily say, though, that it, I'm not seeing that with, with, with young women who are just entering their careers, which well, is some of the women that I'm mentoring, that they are, they are asking. And, you know, I am thrilled to help. And I think, wow, I missed such an opportunity. But I was yeah. so afraid to look like I didn't know what I was doing. And whenever yeah. I would get a compliment, I would kind of shuttle it aside and I would say, well, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You know, it was was never, I never had that confidence. And, you know, it's it's only been, I would say maybe in the last five years that I've really found my own voice. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, okay, well, that was so dumb, right? It was just so dumb. And now I want to make sure that other women are comfortable raising their voices. So I I did participate in the Batsonage mentoring program. There were, it was a very large program. I still have so much work that I need to do to circle back with those women and keep supporting them. But in addition to that, I also mentor the winners of our, we started a women in wine leadership scholarship program uh, several years ago in conjunction with one of our distributor partners called Winebow. Um, So, you know, some women like mentoring. They really, they're not afraid to ask. Other women just, you know, they want to just maybe observe. But I think that the women who are really engaged and the ones that are calling me and, and getting in touch actively and saying, okay, you know, look, I, I have this challenge. Here's what I just, just went through. What would you do? Or what do you think I should do? Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how good that feels when someone asks me that. I don't always, I don't always, I do not always know the answer, but certainly talking about it and directing them to where else can you go for this answer or to get some help with this sticky situation. That's how we're going to change things in the business. It's, it's, it's not about you know, uh, when I think about the kinds of things and I talk to women who are of my age, who have been in this industry for a long time, and we often talk about what we put up with that we just assumed we had to, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because that was just, if you were going to get ahead, you had to be one of the boys. Mm -hmm. And that is not the way that women are now, uh, nor should it even be how other men are now. It shouldn't just be go along to get along. It should be, no, I, this is not right. This is not what I want to do. I, I am, I'm not going to go to that strip club and see if you can drink me under the table. Right. You know, 20 yeah. something years ago, that was like, okay, this is what I have to do in order to kind of prove my mettle. And, and so I'm so glad now that, well, first of all, as a matter of, you know, HR policy, people know that you can't do that anymore. That is no longer appropriate, which that's, is good. That's so and good. If someone's asked to do that, they have the voice to say, no, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to do that. And that's going to be okay. So mm-hmm. it's, positive changes. Would you say there are ways in which you kind of feel a, um, a female leadership presence at Laurent Perrier and in, in, in ways that make you guys a little bit different than somebody else? Or is it just, you know, are, is it gender neutrality where it's not about the fact that you guys are female, that it's, you know, it's about making terrific champagne? But is, I, I just wonder, are there nuances? Are there ways in which you guys are, your as Laurent Perrier as a company is perhaps more sensitive or more in any way, I don't know, female? That's a, that's a great question. And, you know, when I, the, the, the line when we say the largest female and family owned, uh, run rather house in Champagne, that is not something that comes from our house in France. That is something that I feel is important here in America and that, that we communicate, but they kind of shy away from that. 
Um, Alexandra and Stephanie, who currently run the house, their father, Bernard, was at the helm for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't want to denigrate his his accomplishments and his leadership. We owe, we, have, we owe him a tremendous debt to making Laurent Perrier what it is now. So it's not something that, that we use as like, you know, a marketing stance or anything. Mm -hmm. But I, I will say, though, that we're uh, from the from this in terms of working for a for the house in general from France, what I do feel is the family run part of it. For example, when uh, when the pandemic hit and some of our competitors immediately laid off large swaths of their workers, um, I I went to the the to my boss. My boss, the CEO of the operational CEO, is also a man, and Alexandra and Stephanie are on the management board with him. And I pitched the fact that. We have been doing so well in the U.S. And in order for us to continue to do well and do the right thing by our people, you need to keep everyone employed. And, I, and we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the sales are going to be, but keep us whole. We are a, a hardworking team. We've delivered for this company. It is not right for us to be laying people off. And they agreed. So we kept our team completely whole. Everyone was paid 100% of what they were being paid. And I have to say, I'm I'm very very proud of of, uh, of the fact that that my team actually we just got some data. We actually grew faster than any other champagne brand last year. Wow! In the U.S., that's incredible. And, wow! And, that, and and I credit that to to obviously my team's extremely hard work. Obviously, they were grateful for still having jobs, but we actually grew in the middle of the pandemic, whereas a lot of our competitors failed because they just looked at the bottom line looked at you know a short-term gain versus a long-term benefit and that's mm -hmm. not how our house ran um I, I will say that that i did work with bernard when he was at the helm as well i think he would have done the same thing he is one of his quotes that i think of all the time he often used to say with good with quality wine and quality people you cannot fail oh, but you that. need those two things so mm -hmm. that the house really believes in people that's and great. now I, I will say though interestingly on the u.s side um we're we are i certainly do and and again this this all came into very stark relief during the pandemic we have a number of women who work for us on our sales team and in other roles and some of whom have children and disproportionately the responsibility for childcare and homeschooling fell on women as we all know during the pandemic mm -hmm. and you know I, it was breaking my heart reading about uh, women who were kind of trying to, you know, hide their children away or were trying to just pretend that it wasn't an issue and not having the kids in the frame. And I said, look, we're all, we'll get through this. Bring the kids in, you know, do what you got to do. You, we'll schedule things around when you need to be doing things for homeschooling. We'll, we will build this around your needs because quality people, it's a nice thing to say. It's a hard thing to find, first of all. And of course, when you find quality people, which is who I'm very proud to have staffed my entire team with, when you have quality people, everyone else is trying to steal them from you all the time. So, you know, so from my perspective, things that are quote unquote considered female being, you know, looking at good maternity leave policies, looking at supporting women or families in general, you know, because we are not just workers, we are humans. Those are things that are considered female, right or wrong. But those are also things that are incredibly good for business. And, right. and that's, you know, to me, that's just, um, this is the way that companies should be run. And interestingly, I've hired several younger people, millennial age people. I've been interviewing over the last year, all remote interviews for a couple of new positions. And we get asked that. That's, oh, really? And that's new. The younger generation, they're, they're not afraid to ask, what is your maternity leave policy? 
Oh, I would fantastic. never have asked that. I don't Me have either. children. It's never been been in my life's plan to have children. So I would always find a way to work that into an interview to tell people I wasn't going to have children. And I think about what a terrible feminist I was to do that. Mm -hmm. um, because it was, you know, considered that if you asked, then it must be that, you know, that's, that's what you were planning. And therefore, you were a less uh, attractive candidate, which is terrible. No, but um, so, you're exactly right. That's how it was. Mm -hmm. yeah. It absolutely was. So, so I absolutely love the, the guts of, of younger women now who are just saying, you know, no, we're going to ask these things. They're also asking about things like corporate social responsibility, which um, I, I have been in my current position. I kind of, you know, after I had, when I was in California and I, I thought I was going to maybe make wine that, that I realized how hard that is and how many bugs are in the vineyards and how much chemistry is involved. How many like, bugs. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but pe people don't realize that and it's not yeah. this clean, pristine. Gosh, yeah. The yellow jackets yeah. Harvest. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take long to spend time at a vineyard and realize it's not as glamorous as it looks. Exactly. No, it's farming. Uh, it's on farming. It is. It is. You so get I, sticky uh, fingers and sticky. Uh, everything gets sticky. So that's why you weren't going to do heavy. Yeah. 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 So decided... I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So I decided, you know, sales, marketing on this side, after the wine is made, I'll do everything else after that point. Um, and, uh, and some people who I've been working with at my first champagne company back in New York were approached by Laurent Perrier in 1998 to establish Laurent Perrier's first U.S. subsidiary. And they, they called me and they said, Hey, why don't you, why don't you come join us? So I, I did. And I joined LP in 1998 and I stayed doing sales until two, uh, 2002 and then left and worked for another wine and spirits company, did com some consulting, got my MBA on a part-time basis while I was working full-time to try to get rid of some of that imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And just as a side note, I do not regret getting my MBA. I learned a tremendous amount, but the thing that I really learned is that no one has all the answers. Is wow. that I, I thought I was gonna go get that degree because I could then stop feeling like I had imposter syndrome. I did stop having it that because that's only because I learned that nobody knows all the answers. Oh Michelle. So, so helpful. Good to learning. Hear from, it is. I mean, and for our yes. listeners, for mm -hmm. me, for our listeners, that is so helpful to hear someone in your position say something like that because we just assume you do. <laughs> you know, right. And, and like there's this place at which you get to where, oh, now I know the answers, you know? <laughs> well, it's tremendous pressure we put on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a relief to hear, Michelle, you say this. Um, and I hope it resonates, not just Mary with you and me, but with our listeners too. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and it's certainly this past year and a half now, I almost... Um, <laughs> who could ever have known what the answers were? Who, who would have known yeah. what to do in this last year and a half? And, and I think having that open mind, it was actually very liberating in some ways to just say, okay, I am now officially allowed to not know any of the answers. I can think about what do I think is the best way to go, but we have no idea if it's the right thing to do or not. So, and, and I, I credit that with you know, that, that openness of me and, and my, my whole team really just saying, okay, we don't really know what to do, so let's listen. Let's ask questions. That I did learn in school. I learned the, some of the right questions to ask, and I learned mm -hmm. to not be afraid to ask questions or ask for help, and just asking our, our accounts, asking our clients, asking our distributors, what's going on out there? What do you think we should do? What mm -hmm. are, you know, um, and then, and that, that really led to, that, that kind of openness, I think, leads to innovation. It leads to new ideas, even with a house that's been around for over 200 years, you know, in our third, third, uh, uh, third uh, hundred year span that we're now entering, we should not pretend like what we got, what we did here is going to get us there. 
you know, mm -hmm. asking, asking those questions is a great thing. And I, and I love that, that there is more openness and I love creating the culture where that's allowed. And mm -hmm. I also love creating a culture when people ask me what the answer is or what they should do. And I say, I don't know. It's yeah. very, it's very free. Let me think about it. Let's talk about it. What do you think? What other right. information do we need? It really is a very, uh, it's a very different way to approach business. And it, it's and in that, in that way, I think that, and maybe that's a female thing kind of going back to your other, to your other question, but, but um, it's also a cultural thing. I would hope it's not limited to that, but I think there is a humility that is, uh, that has been, um, you know, having been going for so long, pretending that I was supposed to know all the answers and that, you know, it's, it, it was easier for me to be humble. Whereas there's a lot of people and certainly a lot of males in power where the worst possible thing in the world for them would be to show a weakness. Right. And it's not every man, but I, I think it is more common in men. And I think that being able to say you don't know something and being able to show a weakness, if that's a feminine trait, that is what's helped us grow and helped us serve our customers better. Love well, that. sip, sip, hooray to that. Totally. That Love needs that. a big cheers. <laughs> I'll drink. I'll drink to that. Sip, Let's sip, hooray to, to that. that. Okay, we're drinking to that one. <sighs> so, Michelle, you um, you um, you mentioned a quote from Bernard earlier today, and you, as you probably know, um, there's so many great quotes associated with champagne out there from Marilyn Monroe, Winston Churchill, and all. And I'm wondering. What are some of your favorite champagne quotes? Ah, well, it, it, there's one actually by John Maynard Keynes. Um, and uh, he, he was an economist, which, you know, champagne, look, it's, it's, not, it's not an inexpensive beverage, of course. It is an indulgence. It is a luxury. And believe me, if, if we could make it less expensively, we would. Mm -hmm. But we cannot because of the quality demands and, and the price of grapes, et cetera. Uh, but um, even an economist who you would think would be penny pinching and making sure that he's very careful with his money. When he was on his deathbed, he was asked if he had any regrets. And he answered that his only regret in life was that he did not drink more champagne. <laughs> and, okay, that's, you know, I, I, I am certainly not at any risk of regretting that. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I make sure that I integrate it as often as possible. And that, that really kind of goes into this idea, not Obviously, that sounds very self-serving, right? The more people want to drink champagne, the more of it we will be able to, to make and sell to them. But to me, when I think about champagne and what I, what I love about champagne and why I came back to champagne after leaving and working with still wines and even working with spirits, um, and I had this one point in my career where I was actually weighing two really great job offers. One was coming back to LP and one was working with a wonderful, historic, high-quality spirit. And I, I struggled and, and I thought, you know, I, I mean, I struggled because on the one hand, the one offer was maybe more pragmatically the one I should go for, but then the other one was champagne. And I thought, you know, champagne is so special. I, I am not one of these people who could sell ice to Eskimos. I think it's unethical. Um, you know, I, I have no interest in just selling something for the sake of selling it. I truly love champagne and I truly love Laurent Perrier. And what I love so much about champagne in general is that it's not just a beverage. It's something that it's a glass of emotion. You know, we have a, a, this connection with champagne and celebration. And I am a bit of an iconoclast in the industry where, you know, oftentimes I will get asked, how do we get people to drink champagne beyond celebrations? And I say, don't, don't. 
Mm. Is it a great food mm. pairing wine? Sure, it's a great food pairing wine. One of my favorite food pairings was Laurent Perrier Rosé with a duck breast and a Bing, Bing cherry reduction. Uh, glaze was a reduction. And, and I was like, it was, it was mind blowing. You know what else would have gone with that? Various Pinot Noirs, possibly even a Syrah, you know, Cote Roti would have worked. There's other things there that would also work. It's a food pairing. But what else do you, have you ever experienced when you just have a glass of a liquid in your hand and you take a sip and it just, it changes your, your, your mentality. It changes your feeling. Champagne is celebration. What we need to do is celebrate more, not disconnect champagne from celebration. And celebrating can mean, we're seeing it right now, not just Laurent Perrier, but the champagne market in the US is through the roof. Mm. People are celebrating the end of lockdown. We're mm -hmm. celebrating being back with our families and our friends. We're celebrating being able to go out to eat again. Think of all of the things that we can celebrate that oh. we should say, you know what, we deserve to celebrate. Sometimes celebrating is it's been the end of a terrible week, but it's right. over. Let's yes. celebrate that. Let's take right. a moment and do nothing other than celebrate the fact that we've survived, we've learned, and we're going to toast ourselves. We're going to say sip, sip, parade with a glass of champagne. Oh, we agree with that. We do that with a beer. I think we took so much for granted before the pandemic. And yeah. now we, you know, to kind of go back to your quote, I mean, what do you regret? You regret not celebrating more. So mm -hmm. um, not noticing the moments and making them special. So I love that's a perfect yeah. excuse to drink champagne at any time. Yeah. Um, hey, I have to ask you, speaking of um, the name champagne, like, um, do you want to weigh in on the Russian controversy about the name? or do you, want, I, you, you can choose to stay out of it, but I just wondered if you had an opinion on that. Because it's a really, it's not, um, you know, to be called champagne, for our listeners who don't know, you have to be uh, produced in Champagne, France. So um, tell us why that's important and why it, it's a name worth protecting. That is a great question. I'm going to to diplomatically sidestep the the Russia question in okay. as, so as to not create a, a, an international incident, no. um, <laughs> which we no, often do on this show. You know. I'm sure. I, know. <laughs> I, I, I just I, I can't risk it. It's, it's too high stakes. Now the um, so the whole idea though is really the idea of the word champagne written in. Well, let's say written in French, it's the same word in French and in English, right? In the, mm -hmm. in, the, in the regular alphabet that we are used to seeing as opposed to in Cyrillic. But that word champagne, and, and even with leaving Russia to the side, let's just look at it domestically. Let's look at California. Mm -hmm. the, there are still sparkling wines in California that use the word champagne. Right. And this is, um, they're... There is an international agreement, but there are certain brands that are grandfathered in because they were already using this word. Exactly. So the word champagne it, for, for many years in the past was synonymous with any wine that had bubbles in it in this very same way that a Kleenex is synonymous with a tissue. A tissue, yeah. Right? And and it's it's not a just a, it's a Kleenex, not just a tissue. And anyone who has used a terrible generic brand of tissue when they were sick knows that your your, your nose will be red and scruffy and, and raw by the end of, of that cold, as opposed to using something that's high quality, like a true Kleenex. Mm -hmm. um, but, but with champagne, obviously it goes a lot further. It's, it is not just a brand name, it is the name of a place. In the same way that there are Maine lobsters or Napa Cabernets or New York cheesecake. These are all things that, you know, they come from certain places. And further to that, it's not just because we grow the grapes in an area of champagne. It, it's kind of funny, actually, you know, when you, when you, 
there's actually a train that goes from Charles de Gaulle airport directly to Champagne. And I'm, so sometimes when I would go to France, when I go to France for work, that is what my, my travel looks like. I get off mm. of the plane in at Charles de Gaulle. Now, of course, I love going into Paris, spending some time in Paris before I head out to Champagne. But sometimes I have to go right to work. So I get off the train. I go to the train station in the airport. You look up at that giant board that has all the destinations of the trains. And I love that board. The mm. trains go to Zurich and Milan and Rome and Prague and you know, everywhere. And then there's one that, that it just says the destination is Champagne. Love it. Champagne Yaudan. I'm literally going to a place called Champagne. It is a place. It is a region of France. So in that region, even within that region, there is a huge set of rules and regulations that are essentially laws that even if you're growing a grape in Champagne, you have to do things in a very specific way in order to earn the right to put that place name on the label. For example, every grape needs to be handpicked. There is no mechanical harvesting in champagne. It has to be aged in the bottle on leaves for a certain amount of time. There are just pages and pages of these regulations and on, and, and it has to bubble. And unless someone who is making wine in, in champagne follows all of those rules and regulations to a T, they do not legally have the right to put the word champagne on the label. So when I mentioned before champagne is expensive, all of those rules and regulations are part of that reason. We can only press our grapes so hard legally because we want to make sure that we maintain quality so that when someone sees the name champagne on a bottle, it means something, not just where it's from, but all of the things that we had to do in order to earn the right to use that name that make it an indicator of quality in addition to geography. So um, it's a it's a very important thing that we protect that. And when uh, there is a... a there is one brand in California that does a huge amount of volume and they sell for about $10 a bottle and they insist on using California champagne. Yes. And it's, uh, they're using that word as if it were a generic word that just meant wine that bubbles. Yeah. And, you right. know, and that's, that's okay. I don't think anyone's going to confuse that with real champagne, obviously the price point, and then obviously the quality. And interestingly, someone that I work with in, in our office here in New York, Went to uh, went to a former so uh, a former Soviet Socialist Republic. I want to say where was it? I think he went to Tajikistan. I can't even remember. He travels a lot, um, but he he came back from his trip and he brought us a bottle of the Soviet champagne, like the exact one that you're seeing in all of these articles now about what's going on with Russia, saying that you cannot put the word champagne and Cyrillic on a bottle because they have their own version of that. So he brought back a bottle and we opened it and we tasted it and. Let's just say there's just there's no way that anyone is going to confuse that five dollar bottle of what we drank that day for being anything that is anything like the product that we are selling. So <laughs> it was potable, but it tasted like apple cider. You know, it was a very different product. So. Sure, we want and there, to protect that. And there are producers in California who make fruit or nut wines, sparkling fruit or nut wines that they call almond champagne or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I think it's doing a disservice to their own quality, too. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, I mean, I will I will say the brand, the brand I was mentioning earlier is Corbell. And I have a lot of respect for Gary Heck and what he has built out of Corbell. And they even make a red sparkler, which is really quite good. And for that price point, they make lovely wine. Own that. And plus, California is its own wonderful brand. Uh, you know, Sonoma, if it's all coming from Sonoma, if there's an AVA that it's coming from in California, be proud of that. You know, there's there's no 
I, I think that it's a little outdated, um, but I, I think that it's it's something that we, we continuously need to work towards is only having people understanding that if it says champagne on the label, then it comes from France. And there's mm -hmm. there's only a few holdouts on that. But yeah. sure. And I sure. think consumers are much more interested in knowledge, you know, to about where things come from now. Absolutely. So, they want to know where those grapes were grown, who made it, how it was made. And they also want to yeah. know more and more, how are you treating the workers? What are you spraying in the vineyards? You know, the whole sustainability right. aspect yeah. is becoming something that more and more consumers are demanding to know, which I think is a great thing. It, it is. And I love that you brought that up because this is, you know, one of the, I, I've already spoken about some of the wonderful things about working for a, you know, a family run company that has this very long history. Um, and then there also maybe are some challenges with that. And one of them was trying to get lots of information about, Hey, are we using pesticides? Are, what are we doing in the vineyards? And, you know, what are we, um, you know, asking these like really in-depth questions that were never asked before. We've had the same chef de cave since 19, well, he's began working for us in 1973. We have only had three chef de caves, three chief winemakers since the end of World War II. And our, our current chef de cave has been in his position since 2004 and with us since 1973. So when we started asking these questions, he's like, why do you need to know that? You know, his job isn't, he's not a marketer. He's not a salesperson. He makes right. the wine. He, he's underground a lot of his life, making our wonderful wines. So we're like, no, we, we want to know this. And, and when he started telling us these things, I was like, oh my gosh, why aren't we screaming this from the mountaintops? We stopped using pesticides a long time ago. We use sustainable wine growing techniques in our own vineyards and with all of our growers. We've been doing that for years. We have, and it wasn't even until I asked that I learned that we have two sustainable agriculture certificates by two rigorous programs. One's called the HVE certificate. The other one is the VDC certificate, which is only held by about 15% of all vineyards in Champagne. HVE is even less. And you know what? I'm like, why aren't we communicating about this? They're like, well, we're doing this stuff because it's good for the earth. We're not doing about this stuff to market it like that. I'm like, no, but come on, but, but we can do both. We can do both. It's okay. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when, when we, we also, uh, we do this cool thing and I just, I love saying this. It's so fun. Um, when we stopped doing, um, pesticide use, what we started doing was pheromone, uh, mating interruption with bugs. So we have these little packets of pheromones in the vineyards and these little biodegradable packets that we put at the end of the row of the vines. And it basically sends out this pheromone so that the bugs don't know what other bugs to mate with. And the French have this great term for it. They call it confusion sexuelle. Oh, and it's like, ah, oh, come on. I want to talk about that whenever I get the chance. I mean, what a cool, like, <laughs> exactly. to talk about insect mating, you know, it's fun stuff. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's all these things that we're doing. And, and another thing that, um, that I, I should say that, that 40% of Laurent Perrier is actually publicly traded in France. And when we went public to, to remain independent and to remain family run, we needed capital. So we went public with part of our of our winery and the kind of the initial IPO was directed towards our growers from whom we buy grapes, right? So those growers now are owners of Laurent Perrier, uh, That's cool. which is a really cool thing. That's and really no one else in yes. Champagne has done that. So, so we have this big report that we have to publish every year uh, just you know for regulations. And I read through it, it's about 200 pages long. And several years ago I was reading through it and it said that, um, that we were 
even longer than that, we were working towards a zero landfill policy. And again, this is something that I only know because I was reading this document. And we achieved that about three years ago that not a single thing that we do in any of our winemaking results in anything going to landfill. Everything gets repurposed or everything gets recycled. We sell our grape skins to cosmetic companies. You know, we, we, it, it's, we have our own wastewater treatment facility. And, no you know, zero landfill, we had this as a goal. And I kept saying, we need to talk about this. This is really cool. And they're like, we're talking about, don't talk about garbage. Talk about our champagne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you but know, it Michelle, hand it, in hand. it just goes to show what happens when you ask questions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Wow, Mary, night sip sip hooray to that. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Time to drink absolutely. again. Another, yeah, exactly. Should, <laughs> I didn't know I'll, this was going to be a drinking game, but hey, why not? <laughs> I, I approach everything in life like that. I don't know. Everything in life should be drinking game. Exactly. At least if it's champagne. No, no. But but oh, all of these things that you know, it's it's these wonderful things, and and now we are starting to communicate about it because we are seeing that people are interested in it, and are, and yeah. that is part of the quality story. You know, it is part of the, the way that we the way that we act in our in our wineries is very much reflected in the quality of our wines and our longer aging in, in everything that we do. So and it, it's just such a wonderful thing to be able to be so proud of the product, not just because of what it tastes like, but because of everything that we did, we did to actually make it. Absolutely. Well, speaking of questions, I have a couple more. One of my questions is, um, how often are you in Champagne, and uh, what do you like to do when you're not working there? And also, what do you do when you're not working here? Hmm. Well, world's smallest violin. Um, I'm, I'm very sad to say, I have, obviously, I've not been in Champagne um, since the beginning of the pandemic, even though now I, I can go. So it's getting to that point. But um, I'm, I'm usually there about two or three times a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I absolutely love it. I either go with clients or I go for meetings or I just go just you know, to be there and, and experience champagne at different times of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I love, I actually, I just realized that my passport is set to expire, which, cause I haven't pulled that. I, I, you know, I would normally be traveling in the year before the pandemic. I was on 44 planes. I kind of like to count them. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I haven't been on one since March 15th of 2020. I, I flew back from Puerto Rico, actually, and, and that right as, as we went into lockdown. Um, but I, I loved kind of flipping through. And I, so I haven't pulled out my passport in a while. And I just realized it's almost going to expire in a few months. Wow, and I just I love flipping through and seeing, yeah, and seeing all like the Roissy and the, the Charles de Gaulle entries. Uh, I, I, I do get to indulge my love of being in France and being in Champagne. And when I'm there, we are, Laurent Perrier is not open to the public. Um, you know, you can't just kind of drive up and, and ask mm-hmm. for a visit. However, uh, listeners of Sip Sip Hooray have an in. So if they want to contact you or send you a, a message and then send me a message, we do organize visits on a one-on-one private bespoke basis. You know, we don't, we're not just an industrial, oh, come and see what we do. We literally will have someone say, oh, if you really care enough to come visit, well, we have someone who can walk you around and you can have a meaningful visit, not just uh, an intern regurgitating what they've just memorized, you know, about the house. <laughs> we have real, real people who will talk to people who care about Champagne and would like to learn about Laurent Perrier. Well, thank um, you, Michelle. That is a very generous offer. I know I'll be taking you up on that next time <laughs> I'm in Champagne. I was in Champagne on March 1st, 2020. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So... Probably oh, one of the last Americans in Champagne for some time. 
you you were there more recently than I was. I haven't been there since October of 2019. And and I, I love being there for so many reasons. I mean, obviously being in Champagne, looking at the vines, their stage of growth, what's going on in the vineyard, seeing what's going on in the winery. But then there's also the, the city of Reims, R-E-I-M-S, yes. is a beautiful city. It's a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site with an absolutely gorgeous uh, cathedral. Yes. Um, so much history. There's also the, some people are not aware of this, that the original truce, the surrender agreement for World War II was actually signed right behind the train station in Reims. Um, oh, at, I didn't a, know at, that. at a high school. Yeah. So there's a tiny little museum there. It's the size of one classroom and it's called the Museum of the Surrender, or the Musée de la Reddition. And you can actually see where that original document was signed. It wasn't enough of a photo op. So they ended up redoing it in a train car, which most people are familiar with. But the original one was actually signed in Reims. But Reims was actually founded by, by the Romans, the Gallo-Romans. It has a 2000 year history. And there's still the forum where they did their their commerce still exists. And there's an arch that, that is still there. So you can go see 2000 years worth of history when you visit. Oh, Hans. So there's cool. wonderful culture and wonderful heritage there. But one of the things that I'd like to do when I'm there, um, because obviously, if you're going to go there, there are wonderful restaurants. There's a lot of champagne to be enjoyed. There's a lot of wonderful food. Sometimes maybe if you want to do something that's a little different or you need to maybe get a little bit of exercise, but you want to do it, you know, Right. In, um, in, in, a, in a way that's fun. There's this super cool, like, not like, a, I don't know if it's a national park or a state park, but it's called the Faux de Verzy, F-A-U-X-D-E-V-E-R-Z-Y. Uh, Verzy is a Grand Cru vineyard on the Montagne de Reims, which is one of the main growing areas of Champagne. But there is a forest there that has these beautiful trails and these gnarled trees that have been kind of influenced by the winds of the area. And they are these absolutely sculptural old trees that that look like it looks like you're in like a fairy tale forest. Oh. And it's a wonderful place to go for a little, you know, not a lot of people know about it. You'll almost certainly be the only people there. Uh, you can always, of course, pack a little picnic with a few bottles of champagne in your bag. And there's some wonderful places to sit and enjoy in this in this forest on this on this mountain. Well, it's a, we call it a mountain, but it's kind of like a high hill. Um, but it's a beautiful place that not a lot of people know about. What a great tip. I love that. Thank you for that. So what about in the States? What do you do for fun when you're not working um, in the U.S.? Well, certainly the past year and a half has been has been a little light on that stuff. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, like I said, I do travel a lot and I, I love spending, I tack on a day or two either before or after my business to just see whatever the city is that I'm going to to, to experience it. Um, but but actually, just in the last, um, I, I, I'm very proud of my career and what I've accomplished, but I've always had uh, something nagging at me that I, I've always um, kind of assuaged my conscience in terms of like philanthropy or volunteering by just donating money and thinking, okay, well, you know, I've given money. But a little over a year ago, um, in, the, in the aftermath of everything that, that happened after George Floyd was murdered, I thought I want to, I, I need to do something more. I need to do something. I need to do something. I need to make a difference. Um, and part of what I did was I established our first corporate social responsibility program. And as one element of that program, we gave everyone in our company uh, 72 hours of additional paid time off to use for volunteering for whatever organization that they chose. And I thought, well, I, I need to walk the walk here, right? I, I have to lead by example. 
So I looked into various organizations and decided that I wanted to volunteer with the Girl Scouts and specifically with a troop of the Girl Scouts here in New York called Troop 6000, which is for homeless girls in the New York City shelter system. Oh, wow. And I was never a Girl Scout. I kind of always wanted to be, but it, it never happened. I was um, a Girl Scout. I, I was too. You. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm a first class Girl Scout. That means you oh, like, wow. stuck with it forever, like till oh. high school. <laughs> I, w- I, was, I, 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 w- I was a brownie and what was the next one? Cadet after that, the next level. But yeah, Cadet. and my my mom was... Um, my Girl Scout troop leader one year. Yeah, it's oh, good times. Yeah. Troop so, 499. So, I, love so troop 6, I love it. Troop 6000 and they're so homeless we, girls. I lo- yes, I they're, they're girls who are, who are in that system. And it's, and of course, Girl Scout, I didn't really know what it was. I knew about, you know, the cookies. and the, But what I didn't know, even for example, about the cookies is that along the whole range, you've got little brownies, the little girls, right? You're teaching them how to count change. Mm-hmm. And then for the the juniors, for like the the older Girl Scouts in high school, I specifically looked at the program and it said that they learn how to do P&Ls, profit and loss statements. Oh, wow. Oh, no way. Cool. So this whole thing is about, it's empowering girls and young women and learning skills. And then also in Troop 6000, the mothers are invited to be in the meetings with us. So they also learn these skills. And I mean, I do P&Ls all day long and I thought, well, that I can do, you know, I'm, 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 uh, so, so that's been really, that's, that's been taking up any of any of my available time. And, and I actually just got back from camp on Sunday for the first time, my first time ever at Girl Scout camp. You went to camp. I went to camp. We did the <laughs> all songs. Right. I learned how to read a compass and a fire and we did all of this amazing stuff. And, and, you know, and I, I kind of realized that I might, I must be doing it wrong because volunteering is supposed to be about, you know, giving back, but I'm just, I'm getting a whole lot more than I'm giving. So oh. I'll, you know, I've, I've got to. I guess I'm doing it wrong, but, but so that's been something Good that I've been trying you. to, you know, it, it's been, it's something that instead of just like complaining about the way that the world is, I'm, I'm looking to find kind of ways to fix it in ways that I think will be helpful. And this has just been an amazing experience that I just, I could not have imagined in my wildest dreams how much I would love it. Oh, I think we you. need another toast to that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Cheers We're going to gonna need another bottle. I know. <laughs> Speaking of the bottles, we can't let you get away without talking about the champagne mm-hmm. and these beautiful wines. Um, mm-hmm. And um, for our listeners out there, you know, hopefully you'll be salivating after you hear us talk about them, but they're just beautiful, beautiful wines. So um, yeah, let's start with the, the Brut which is um, something everyone is maybe familiar with. Um, the Brute style is a drier style of wine. And yes. Delicious. So our, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're not supposed to have favorite children within our, our portfolio, but I have to admit that our Brute non-vintage, which is our most accessible, least expensive wine, is really what I kind of gravitate towards most. It is so easy drinking. It is so delicious. It is called La Cuvée, Laurent Perrier La Cuvée, non fruit non vintage, and it's predominantly Chardonnay, which is unusual because Chardonnay is the least planted and most expensive grape in Champagne. So usually you'll have a lot of Pinot Meunier in a non vintage blend from from other brands, but we focus on the Chardonnay because we want it to be light and refreshing and easy drinking. But it's also complex. It has four years of aging at a minimum. The legal minimum in Champagne is one year of aging. I was mentioning mm. those regulations, and we have four years because that's where you get that biscuitiness that complexity yes. mm-hmm. so it's it's like it is what champagne to me is supposed to taste like and it's just it's available in these tiny little single serving bottles called called splits or 187s mm. 
good little roadies, I have to say. Roadies, yes. (laughs) Which I have to admit during the pandemic, that was that was one of my, you know, people talked about walk tales. That was my walk tale was taking a walk (laughs) with my tiny little bottle of La Cuvée. And then we also have half bottles. So if you're you're the only one who's drinking champagne for the evening and whoever you're with is drinking something else, it's a great way to, to just enjoy champagne, you know, on your own. Perfect. The half bottles are a perfect size for a bubble bath. So, oh. highly recommended. <laughs> it's good tip. I had some just last night and absolutely loved it. Now, what we are most known for, however, is our rosé. So the Laurent Perrier, yes. I know that we're just we're just um, we're just talking here, but if I can try to conjure up in people's minds, if they think about ever seeing a bottle of pink champagne and it's got this beautiful kind of squat shape, bulbous on the bottom with a short neck and this glass crest emblazoned on the front and a round pink label, that's Laurent Perrier Rosé. And that is our, our icon, that is what we are most known for. We started making that that champagne in 1968. So we were kind of at the forefront, we are the forefront of the non-vintage Rosé category in champagne. So I know now everyone, and I love it, right? Everyone now is Rosé all day, and mm-hmm. I've been asked, you know, the, the recent trend in Rosé champagnes, my, it's kind of like when you ask someone who's been a struggling artist or, or actor for a long time, you're an overnight success. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I started, I started 20 years ago and then it just took overnight for you to hear about me. And that's kind of where we are with, with LP Rosé. Mm-hmm. But LP Rosé was the standard bearer. We remain the standard bearer. For quite some time, we were the largest Rosé champagne in the world. But frankly, we established people's desire for this. People had Rosé champagne and they loved it. And then competitors started joining this segment and they can make a lot more of it than we can because we're too quality focused. We can't make more of it. it mm-hmm. Ours is 100% Pinot Noir. It's made only from grapes that are coming from vineyards that are designated at the 100% quality rating in Champagne, which is called Grand Cru. So it's, you know, it's, it's limited in, in what we can make sure. of it. And the way you make it is very different from the way most other champagne houses make their rosés. Usually they blend a white still wine and a red still wine, but you don't do that. You do something else. That's called the cheating method. No, no, no. There are no, no, no. <laughs> that, that method is called the assemblage method. And yes, that is to us, that's kind of like you, know, you make a red wine, you make a white wine, you blend them together. And what you're going to get is something where, yes, you're, you're achieving the right color, but it's like kind of a little bit like adding food coloring. You're not going to get like the full expression of that red fruit. So what we do is we actually make it again out of 100% Pinot Noir and we use what's called the maceration technique. So we just let the grapes sit in a tank in a, at a cold temperature. So no fermentation occurs. The juice sits with the grape skins for about two to three days. And that's where it pulls all of its aromatic intensity and aromatic freshness and its color. And that's, that's all we do. It sounds simple, right? We basically, we just, we, we crush the grapes and then we just let them sit there for three days. But that is very unusual. And it's very difficult because there's a little law in champagne that says you're not allowed to make a red champagne. So we have to be very careful that we don't let them sit for too long. Too long, yeah. Because then it would be, it's kind of like, you know, well, what does red champagne mean? It's kind of like Congress's old definition of obscenity. Well, we'll know it when we see it. Well, <laughs> if, if you if you've already uh, if you've already kind of you know macerated all of your Pinot Noir, you can't just dump it down the drain if someone says you know it's too red. So we have to be very careful. But we get that perfect you know handpicked, destemmed um, berries only, sitting in a tank for two to three days. To, and so and what you get from that is just 
amazing Pinot Noir varietal characteristic. You get all these bright fruit aromas of strawberries and raspberries, but it's a dry wine. Yes, it's pink, but it's dry. There's no sugar in it. Yeah. Right. It's, it's you know, extra sugar. I love the color. It, um, it reminds me of blood orange. And I also get some blood orange aroma and flavor in addition to the berry flavors you were talking about. Absolutely. Mary, I love you've got a, a great nose. That is oh, definitely thank you. something that I, I find in, in our rosé, that freshness, right? The, the vibrancy that you would get in a blood orange. You don't get that acidity. Um, you know, that you would expect from, and I sometimes get a ruby red grapefruit in a blood orange, but it doesn't have that acidity. It's very balanced mm -hmm. as well, but you get that vibrant citrusy and berry, red berry aromas. And as I mentioned, you know, with that food pairing, just because it has all of those intense fruit aromas, it's still something that it matches with salmon like crazy, like smoked salmon and the rosé is an absolutely phenomenal pairing. Yeah, and Pete, you know, actually, even even Thai food and, and our rosé, it's it's just I've been doing a lot of takeout. So yes, yeah, even <laughs> pizza, even pizza with our rosé. Well, yeah. pizza with anything in my book, nice. it is gorgeous. I love the rosé. And then the third wine you sent us is um, something that's you guys were doing it before it really became on trend, but it's. Um, what we call zero dosage or and, and what you're calling it is um a brute nature yes so this is this is another um example of how we are a, a house that is very focused on quality and maybe don't excel as much at, at marketing right but uh, but this is the this is actually what i'm enjoying right now all my sips of parades i are i am enjoying with laurent perrier blanc de blanc brute nature non-vintage me too me too. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> this is, so, so a Blanc de Blanc, uh, this is the, the house of Laurent Perrier, the group Laurent Perrier. We own several other champagne houses. That's all we do. All we do is make champagne, but we also make a champagne called Salon, which is we own them. And it's the same Chef de Cave that makes Salon. And Salon is considered the absolute best Blanc de Blanc in the world for champagne, period. Very expensive, very, very limited production. So we have this, this know-how, this knowledge since the 1980s, we have, we have owned Salon. Um, and then in addition to that, we also have been making since 1981, uh, well, in 1981, we released a Brut Nature. This was a new category of champagne that referred to the amount of sugar that was added. And basically it's no sugar added. In champagne, we can add sugar up to three times during the winemaking process. And in our Brut Nature, we add none. We only use the sugars that are present in the grapes naturally at the time that they are harvested. That is extremely rare. So we, we released this wine in 19, a wine in 1981 called Ultra Brut, which was a Brut Nature. And we released that based on the information that was learned by Bernard de Nodoncourt, who was at the helm of the company at that time, when he looked back into Laurent Perrier's history in the 19th century, when they were, we were making a wine with no sugar added, which at the time was called the Grand Van Sans Supra. We had stopped making it over a hundred years ago, but he wanted to bring out something new to add to the Laurent Perrier range, but not new for the sake of being new. Everything is respectful of the heritage of Laurent Perrier and of Champagne, but there was no category for this type of Champagne. So he created it along with the regulatory agencies in Champagne and it was called Brut Nature. Again, his name was Bernard de Nonancourt, BN, 
and Brut Nature, also oh, BN. Yes. I think, you know, I think he may have put a little Easter egg in there for us. Oh, so, yes. So we were making that since 1981. And the, the hard thing in champagne, sugar is a function of how much sunlight the grapes get, right? To put it on a, on a to simplify it. And champagne used to be the most northern, the northernmost growing region in the world for grapes. As the climate has warmed, we're seeing lots of sparklers in England now, right? There's things are warmer in champagne. It right. used to be very, very difficult to make a Brut Nature because we couldn't add sugar. But as it became easier, other companies and other brands also started making a Brut Nature. Uh, so now you will see that designation on multiple brands, but it was only Laurent Perrier who was making that in the 19th century. And then in the, and then in 1981, when we released our Ultra Brut, uh, Brut Nature, which is a blend of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And we love Chardonnay, as I mentioned, it's the predominant grape in our La Cuvée, our non-vintage blend. And we actually were just doing some tests. We were able to acquire some new Chardonnay vineyards uh, in the early 2000s. And we tested doing a Blanc de Blanc that was so 100% Chardonnay that also had no sugar added. This is, and, and it has to be balanced. It can't be super acidic. It has to be just perfect. Everything has to be lined up in order for the wine to, to work. Uh, and we did, and we finally figured it out and we released it in 2019. So it's very limited production. So it's special order. If you, you probably won't find it at your local wine shop, but you can always ask them and they can get some of the allocation that we have given to the markets. It's a wonderful wine. It's also in these post pandemic times. If anyone else has put on the quarantine 15 and then some change, it has, it has <laughs> guilty. Yeah, it happens to the best of us. Uh, but it's, uh, it has about a third fewer calories as any other champagne oh, because okay. it is uh, because there is no sugar in it so and does that mean the, wonderfully clean i'm sorry does it mean the alcohol level is a little bit lower too no the alcohol level is the same all of our alcohol levels are about 12 percent okay. but it but we haven't that that'll just be like the natural level but there's no residual sugar and almost all champagnes have some level of residual sugar in them and that'll contribute to the sl slightly higher calorie count well, we can't say it enough. The, the champagnes are so darn delicious and they're easy to drink. They're so beautifully balanced and they don't hit you with that super sweet bomb, you know, and um, golly, they're just gorgeous. So glad you love them. Yes. Michelle, um, what's your most memorable bottle of champagne? Oh, wow. Well, um, obviously I'm, I'm very privileged in, in that there have been, there have been many, um, but I would say there, there are two and in reverse chronological order, I will, I will give you a little insight into what it's like to work in sales for a champagne company or a wine company and okay. you get samples. And obviously, you know, we all use our samples to sell our wines with our customers, but you know, you also maybe take a bottle or two or 10 and you put it in your cellar and you kind of develop. <laughs> You know your own little cellar because you know that's that's just some place that some of these sample bottles go right so when i when i worked for laurent perrier the first time i was lucky enough to have some extra sample bottles hanging around by the time that i had left the job then and uh, i had been enjoying them for about 10 years and i literally had one bottle left of our prestige cuvee which is called grand siècle and this is across two cross country moves and a marriage and a divorce. And, you know, just like, but I, I had this one bottle left and I just kept saving it for something and I didn't really know what. And I ended up finally opening it on, um, on the day that I was offered the position to move 
to, to the day that I accepted the, the position to come back at the, as president of Laurent Perrier US. And at, at the time I was living in this tiny little shoebox, kind of like a half a shoebox of an apartment in New York City on the 38th floor with the most amazing view. I, you know, there was no room, but the view made up for it and it had this tiny little balcony. And I popped that cork on the balcony of this uh, of this little studio with this beautiful view of New York when I was offered this position. And it, I can't imagine it, a bottle of champagne tasting any better. Oh, what a yeah. great story. I love that. Uh, and then I will say that the one before that, I, the first bottle of, of uh, liquor that my parents had had a, a New Year's Eve party and they were not drinkers when I was young. Uh-huh. And when I was maybe a sophomore in, college, in, in high school, rather, I stole a bottle. One of my friends <gasps> was like, oh, take that bottle of champagne. You don't need a corkscrew. I guess her family drank wine. Mine did not. <laughs> so we like took our folk guitars and ran into the woods and we, we stole this bottle of champagne. And uh, we, you know, sang our guitars. And I remember drinking this bottle and looking up and seeing the trees spinning above my head. And then uh, I used Uh-oh. it as a, can- as a candle holder for years after that, right? Went to, <laughs> went to college, became a goth, you know, melted all these, these candles on it. So and, cool. uh, and not that long ago, maybe about 10 years ago, I was like, I wonder what this is under here. At this point, it's just a giant mound of wax, right? So yeah. I chipped off mm-hmm. all of the stuff that I had, you know, stolen from my parents at some point in the, in the late 80s. <laughs> and it was a bottle of Dom Perignon 1982. Really? What? I thought, wow. <laughs> I, I was what a destiny, right? I mean, wow. my, 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 my palate was primed. I was that's just ready. Right. That's, you know, that's, that's right. I started drinking even as a small time thief out of my parents' uh, wine cellar. It started with now, the good stuff. Did, did you get found out for taking that bottle? No, never. No, my parents, ah. you know, you know, I was like, God, I think there were more bottles. Whatever happened to them? They, you know, I, asked, <laughs> I asked my mom. She's like, eh, they got dusty. We probably threw them out. I'm like, oh, God. That's, no. that's incredible. Again, not coming from a from a wine drinking household. I, I I don't know where they ended up, but they were probably just probably in a in a recycling bin somewhere. Well, at least you rescued one and enjoyed it. Exactly. Indeed, indeed. So it was it was very kind of prophetic. You know, there's no way that I could have known that. And it was uh, it was like wow. That's when you start there. I mean, you know, there's again, there's there's uh, it's a it's a wonderful wine, and and I guess that just kind of primed my palate for excellent wines. So now so here I am at Laurent Perrier. Hey, Michelle, we have a couple listener questions I want to run by you real quickly. Oh, okay. Um, okay, I'm going to see if I can do this. Um, this is the first one. Hi, uh, my name's Maggie from Alviso, and I really like some bubbly. Um, and I'm kind of curious to know who's the quintessential Laurent Perrier customer? Who drinks this? Mm, I love did that you question. Get that? You did. Okay, I did. Good. I did. Yeah. Um, so, the Laurent Perrier customer, uh, yeah, I, I was mentioning before, like how much we grew and and, yeah. and how, how great we did, but we will never be one of the biggest brands. We do not have the grapes for it. We do not, we cannot have that kind of quality level. Um, so our, our, we're currently, we're the fourth largest brand in the U.S. The highest that we will ever be is the third largest okay. because we, we can't even touch the brands that are at number one and number two, because again, we're too quality focused and you can't make the quality wines that we make uh at that quantity mm. so those other brands that are the largest are the ones that you know certainly they're, they're large for a reason they're they're lifestyle brands they are they're they're kind of in, in some ways they are brands that are sold based on the perception of, of a lifestyle as opposed to the quality so you know that is not something that we can ever do so the laurent perrier customer 
and consumer is someone who doesn't care about having what everybody else has, hmm. that isn't concerned about just buying something because what it's what they're expected to buy or you know, a brand that they're expected to wear. It's someone that really acknowledges quality and it matters to them. And that doesn't mean that they need to know anything about champagne. All they need to know, I mean, like, I don't know anything about leather making, right? Or, or, or crafting a handbag. I know that Hermes makes incredible handbags, mm -hmm. right? That is, you know, obviously I'm not saying that everyone is an LP consumer is an Hermes consumer. I am not myself. I do not have an Hermes handbag, um, but Hermes can never make the kind of handbags that let's say a Louis Vuitton can make, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're like the largest brand. That is, we're not a Louis Vuitton necessarily customer. We are the, the person who at least would love to have if they could afford it, right? An Hermes handbag because of that respect for the craftsmanship and the quality that's involved. So oh, someone who's not answer. just going with the flow and also I use Hermes also because they are family run. Mm -hmm. And so there's a people who care about a dedication to quality. And honestly, you don't need to know a darn thing about champagne. You just need to taste it. And if it tastes good, you can taste that quality. Those are the people that we would love to have as our consumers. Oh, and those are the people too, the, the buyers in restaurants, the buyers in stores. That's why they support Laurent Perrier. That's why they feel confident when they get behind it and they recommend it to their customers. It's because the quality is there. So people for whom quality matters, those are Laurent Perrier customers. Okay, cool. And now one more question. This one has to do with what to eat with um, Laurent Perrier. Here you go. Hi, I'm Sally from Danville, and I'm wondering, I love to prepare food, and I love champagne, and I'm wondering, what is the best cuisine to be served with champagne? Well, I couldn't catch if Sally was from from Danville, Danville. California. Danville, or California. No, is there another Danville out there? Well, no, there's Denville, New Jersey, which is basically right from oh. near where I'm from, so oh. I don't know, maybe I thought maybe Denville. <laughs> no, Danville, uh. California. And she wants to know, so it, it, she wants to know in, in terms of like, does Thai pair best with it? Mexican, Chinese food, French food, obviously, but is there a cuisine that you like? So, you know, champagne is one of the very, very few essentially pretty much the only large scale kind of wine that is a blend of white and red wines, right? So there's, there's three main grapes in Champagne, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and another black grape called Meunier. Um, but in, you won't find much Meunier in Laurent Perrier. So basically we're a blend of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. and so the versatility there, right? You can imagine is just incredible. So, you know, in our, in our non-vintage, in our La Cuvée, those are, those are the, the predominant grapes. So we have this versatility that matches with so much. The first thing, of course, that I recommend with champagne is just champagne on its own, right? It's, you don't need any food with it. And then if you are having a, I'm not a fantastic cook myself. I love being able to just put out some almonds and some potato chips and some popcorn with our champagne. Mm -hmm. And it sounds really almost, you know, like, like too easy, but those are great pairings. Anything that's salty and things that are fried go really well with champagne. Yeah. So, so those, that's like a super easy little app course to start out with, but yes. then, you know, you can go from, as I mentioned, our rosé with duck, because it's a hundred percent Pinot Noir. It'll match the things that, that, that go with Pinot Noir and things that are heavy that maybe you want a little acid to cut through that. It's a wonderful pairing with duck and a wonderful pairing with salmon. It's our rosé. The Blanc de Blanc, Brut Nature, which again, being hundred percent Chardonnay and having no sugar, that is an incredibly good wine for shellfish oysters and sushi, mm. sushi and caviar, right? It's so clean. Like people drink vodka with caviar because you don't want anything getting into the, in, in the way with that. 
to me, uh, Blanc de Blanc Brut Nature with caviar is extraordinary. It's clean, mm. it's fresh, and you have that that saltiness from the, the caviar that works so well. You know, as I was mentioning the white chalk soil of Champagne, that's actually the a dried up seabed of the Paris Basin geologically. That literally is tiny little sea organisms from millions of years ago. So, so seafood and Champagne tends mm -hmm. to be a, a wonderful combination. Fantastic. It's, it's so versatile. It's so versatile. The, the hardest part is, though, I, I would say, Sally, if you're if you're trying things out, if you open up the bottle to, to taste while you're cooking, I tend to find that there's kind of nothing left by the time you're done cooking. So <laughs> that's, that's the challenge of pairing yeah. champagne with food. That's the but challenge. It, it certainly helps you with your cooking. Maybe yeah, your cooking comes out more. even better. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely right, Mary. Uh, absolutely right. <laughs> Oh, Michelle, well, thank you so much. Yes. You know, Michelle, it has just been un plaisir to get to know you and to spend this time chatting about all things bubbly and really getting to know you. This is how, how, how fun. And um, I love your approach. I love that you're helping women in the industry and um, all that Laurent Perrier is doing to um, further careers for women. Um, to be a more responsible, sustainable partner in the world, in wine. Yeah, ditto to everything Mary Orlin said. <laughs> just <laughs> love the conversation. And I think well, you're uh, just a, a breath of fresh air. And I, champagne is a special treat. And it is, um, your, your brand is obviously high quality. And I love that you are also yet very down to earth and approachable. And that's so, so refreshing and fun for us. So thank you. Oh, well, well, thank you. And that really is, I'm, I'm honored to say that I, I do feel like I am, I'm, I'm a good representative of the house for that. It's not just me. That is who we are at Laurent Perrier. We are real people. And I, I want to thank you so much for asking such great questions and such important questions. Um, about, about things that really matter and for giving me the opportunity to talk about Laurent Perrier and, and everything that we're doing that, that really does matter in the world. So thank you. All Our right. pleasure. <laughs> well, sip, sip, hooray, Michelle. Sip, sip, hooray to that, ladies. Cheers yes. to you and cheers to a continuation of your amazing podcast. Thank you. Thank you, merci, Michelle. Merci. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Au revoir. Au revoir. Well, Mary Orlin, what a force of nature that Michelle DeFeo is. She is so fun, articulate, passionate, and wow, what a terrific representative of Laurent Perrier and the champagne industry in general. I mean, you talk about reasons to celebrate and why it's worth, why quality is worth it. I just loved um, everything she had to say, and her, their wines are just incredibly gorgeous. They are Mary Babbitt, and you know, Everything that she and Laurent Perrier are doing to help women uh, rise even higher and to um, just let everybody know that, yes, champagne is for celebration, and but you have to find the little celebrations in every day, not just wait for the holidays or events like graduations or marriages. It, there's, there's something you can celebrate every day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we thank you guys for listening and joining us in this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you like our show, tell your friends and, and please share the news about Sip Sip Hooray. We certainly appreciate your li you listening to us and we would love to, you to bring more people into our tent. 
And the way to do that is head to our website, sipsipparaypodcast.com. You will see um, this episode and you will see all the places that you can um, listen, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes. Um, You'll also find all of our previous episodes, which we hope um, at some point you'll listen to as well. And then you can follow us on social media. We are at Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we are Sip Sip Hooray, the number one. Okay, Mary Orlin, I'm going to let you go. Enjoy the rest of that bubbly. Uh, Cheers to you, girl. Yes, cheers. Sip, sip, hooray. Sip, sip, hooray.